Welcome to another exciting edition of the Falkirk Center podcast, where we're actually broadcasting from the state of Nevada. I'm here with Charlie Kirk. How are we doing? Doing great. Pastor Malachi O'Brien. This is going to be a fun conversation. It is. And today, guys, we're talking about three things, religious liberty, religious liberty, and religious liberty. Charlie, what in the world is going on? You're seeing, you know, churches being burned down, Bibles being burned in the state of Oregon. Um, You're seeing uh, churches that are being shut down, right? Almost indefinitely. Um, The despots who are running state governments, Michigan, Minnesota, California. It's insane. The authoritarians will never allow a power to be greater than themselves. And they see a great power grab happening in our country. And the church, by definition, puts something above government. It puts moral law and God and obedience to Christ above the authoritarian um, doctrine, which is we must be the most important thing on the planet. And so there's, there's no question that when the tyrants try to take over everything, they need the churches to stay closed. That when that kind of moral drumbeat is allowed to continue, all of a sudden they start to matter a lot less. And so that's exactly what's happening now. And you have people that call themselves conservative justices, John Roberts, who basically have sided with the secular humanists and where they value casinos more than they value churches. What does that say about your country? What does that say about the society that you live in? I mean, it's it's an incredibly dangerous precedent to engage in. And so I think what's happening in our country right now is, and it's an open-ended question, which is, you know, do we, do we as Christians believe what we say we believe enough to actually fight for it? Or do we just say it and we're okay watching it on live stream as long as they allow that? And so that's the question that's happening right now. And certain pastors are rising up, John MacArthur and Jack Hibbs and Rob McCoy. And Rob McCoy might be arrested in the next couple of days for what he's doing. Um, Do you mind giving us a quick update, like specifically yeah. with Pastor McCoy? So yeah, Pastor Rob McCoy is a dear friend of mine. I actually consider him to be my pastor. Met him through the whole Falkirk thing, actually. Yeah, yeah. Amazing. He uh, pastors a church called Calvary Chapel Thousand Oaks. Never tr- never closed his church. Briefly closed it for like a couple weeks, and he's like, we're opening. Right. And he did the right thing. And They were getting, open for Easter, were they not? Uh, yeah, in some form or fashion. It was actually really obedient the way he did it. And he's like, we're going to abide by the city and local government. Now he's just like, this is... Ridiculous, yeah. ruled by fiat, we are no longer going to obey it. Christ is the head of the church, not, you know, Gavin like Newsom. Copernicus, who right. runs right. Ventura County or whatever. Yeah, that's right. right? Yeah. Um, so, yeah. So then Pastor, Pastor Rob McCoy is now, the, it's TBD, the story hasn't been finished. But as of the recording of this podcast, he um, basically is being threatened with arrest. The Ventura County uh, said they're going to shut off their water and their, their, uh, uh, power and that if whoever shows up, they're going to probably arrest the organizers. And mm-hmm. so that's that's where we're at right now. And strip clubs are fully operational and open in New Jersey. Churches are at no more than 10 people. You can't sing while you're in church. And I guess I guess basically what they're saying is if you're protesting the murder of George Floyd, then you're okay to gather in whatever numbers you want to. But if you are trying to find salvation, not, and I want to, last point on this, I'd love to get Malachi's take on it. I think that we need to change the way we phrase things. We say church is essential, totally agree. But the question is salvation essential. Mm. And I mean, that's the more important question because the number one way people get saved is obviously the instrument of the gathering of believers, ecclesia, Amen. And church. Amen. I guess what our government is saying is salvation isn't essential. Mm. Is that it's not essential whether or not you find eternal life. Yeah. That's, that's basically what our tyrants are telling us. It's like the gospel of the state is one of safety, right? The gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ is is one of great risk. 
you have to die to self, right? And so it, what's interesting is that when you think of secularists, they really do believe this life is it. And that's why they cling to this life so dearly. They're afraid of germs. I mean, literally afraid of, of something that could happen to them. And they believe with, with this complete fidelity as though, um, as though the government is infallible. Right? But I want to hear your take. Well, I would just say Jesus is dangerous. Yeah. And so his mission is dangerous. His call is dangerous. We're called to die. And so I think the placebo sermons no longer work anymore and just placating to culture. We're, I mean, we're being revealed. It was already there. This moment's only revealed that. So I think in the, in the book of Jeremiah, Jeremiah was not a popular person to the rest of the, of the prophets. And Jeremiah had a word for the rest of the prophets. He said, um, he said, you say there's peace, peace when there is no peace. He says, to the Lord told Jeremiah, through Jeremiah said, you've healed the hurt of the daughter of my people slightly. So what we have today is a lot of slightly pastors and slightly ministries that declare a false message. And we shouldn't be surprised because that's actually what Jesus said would, would happen. But in the midst of the greatest darkness, we'll have the greatest light. And I think people are drawn to boldness and courage and conviction, but no more placebo sermons. Well, by the way, so I love your use of that term because that was exact. I had a conversation the other day. I don't know. I don't think it was even with you. And that term came up, this, this placebo effect. And I think the way modern churches have oriented themselves is that it's no longer about worship. It's not sacred, right? There's not, it's not a pursuit of holiness or even the preaching of the gospel of the salvation that is only through Jesus Christ. But instead, it's like a TED Talk, you know, and people are going in and there's like, it's a performance and it's just this soliloquy on stage for 30 minutes where people talk about philosophy, but it's not actually guided by biblical truth. It's not actual exposition. And Charlie, you're so right. The gathered church, the preaching church, the praising church, that's the church with power. And so you're seeing people being stripped of that right. The question is, are you going to fight for it? Are you going to stand up? The answer so far is basically no. I mean, there are pastors that are starting to rise up, not nearly enough. Uh, and they hide behind Romans 13, which I think is one of the most misapplied pieces of gospel that is out there, truly. Amen. And it's just, it's really interesting to me. The, and Malachi would probably be able to comment on this better because of your theological expertise. But at least from my understanding, the adherence to Romans 13 for some of the church to do nothing, yet they, they don't talk about at all the slaughter of the unborn or any of these other things, which is obviously talked about about the defense of the innocent and all this. It's just, if you are going to really, like say, Romans 13, Romans 13, which people that are watching or listening, I don't know. Malachi will be able to say it better than I can, but basically it's God appoints positions of authority. You must submit yourself to those pieces of authority, right? And I basically got that right. Is that true? Yeah, okay. So, and first of all, it's a recognition of the sovereign and the sovereign in Paul's time was Nero. Now, mind you, context is very important. This was before Nero decided to start cut, cutting Christians' heads off, just when this was written, um, before Nero's great persecution of Christians uh, in that time. It was also before, actually, Paul ever stepped foot in Rome, so he actually had no—it uh, was a letter to the Romans before he actually had any context of Rome. And the other thing is this, is that who's the sovereign in America? Like, we are. We, the people, through our own conscious decisions and understanding of moral law and natural law and natural rights— we are able to determine, based on that, because we know what God gives us our natural rights, that when some laws are unjust against what natural rights are given to us, and we are the sovereign. Yeah. So when our, when our rights are being our, the sovereign, we are being violated, and that law is unjust. Mm. Therefore, it's in direct contradiction to Romans 13. 
And so I think that's actually a much better way to look at it. So I think it's misapplied. But the, the other point here, Ryan, that I think is really critical, and I, I, people say, are you disappointed or are you optimistic or pessimistic about the reaction, the way the churches handle it? I think it's to be determined. I think that story is still being written in some ways. I think we are seeing a lot of Christians rise up. Yeah. But I think a better way to describe it is we are seeing who actually believes this stuff and who doesn't. Amen. And I think that as the broader story is still being written, we are being able to properly categorize who is really actually willing to fight for eternal truths. And I, I was interfacing with a pastor recently, not to be named, and I was really disappointed. He's like, well, I don't want to be arrested, be a bad look. And I was like, man, you, first of all, you wouldn't be the first person to be arrested for your faith. Like, that's kind of the entire New Testament. <laughs> yeah, right. It's basically like letters from prison. You're first. in good company, yeah. Secondly, like, what, so what? Like, this yeah. is all just dust and particles. Aren't, isn't there a greater spiritual truth here? And I'm not saying he doesn't believe that. I'm just saying he's not acting on what he says he believes. Leonard Raven, Leonard Ravenhill uh, of yesteryear said, "We are a profitless generation." You know, with you know, and we have a lot of echoes, but not true voices, like John the Baptist-like voices. It'll say the one message that Jesus said, and that's repent. Yeah. You know, and Jesus, he said, "I came to bring uh, uh, not peace but a sword." So real religion, real faith will divide. And so I would be curious to you guys, what do you guys say to the churches that are just saying, no, we're, we're just, we're not meeting. We're just going to say, we're not going to meet for six months or a year. I mean, honestly, honest, real thoughts. Cowardice, that's the term that comes up. It's not courage. Now, I know that some are going to say, well, we're doing house churches. Okay, so you're still meeting is what you're saying. There's going to be an ecclesia. There's going to be some, you know, you're going to be administering the sacraments, the Lord's Supper. You're going to be preaching. You're still going to be baptizing. That's fine. That's what the that's actually what the first century church did. It's what the church did in Rome. They met in catacombs. They met in houses, house churches. That's fine. But if you're talking about like total secession from meeting, oh, that's that's 100% cowardice. Uh, that's not courage. That's not conviction. Yeah. That's not anything else. Any other replacement term, you're just providing a smoke screen for your own disobedience. That's my take. Yeah, and I, I think that people who are really on fire for their faith, they have a boldness to them. And I think that's really lacking in the Christian church. It feels far too institutional, quite honestly, and not that kind of spirit of rebellion that we have seen in a good way. I mean, people say you can't rebel as a Christian. Like, what are you talking about? Like, Jesus was a rebel. He was a rebel against you know, a lot of things. He brought, he brought forth a new covenant. So I think that's a bad argument. But also, I mean, the kind of in Acts 10 and Acts 11 and Acts 12, where the church was still kind of forming itself, they were so on fire for the faith that they were willing to risk their lives. I mean, look at the stoning of Stephen. And that, that should draw a lot of conviction. I mean, he had no idea what he was doing. He was gave the first sermon. He was kind of meandering. He thought it would end well. And he ends up getting killed by Paul, who actually ends up saving the entire Western world. But yeah, so I just... Look, I think people who are on fire for their faith, and this is what's so weird, it's so strange because I see these people and I've been following them for years. Like, you know, I'm pretty well-versed in kind of Christian stardom, you know, and I kind of follow their Instagram accounts and they're always screaming. Like the, the, the decibel level of their faith is pretty remarkable. You know what I mean? It's like they got the Bible in one hand. I've been following these guys for years. And I love the message. I love it. And I went back to some of these sermons and they're like, if you believe, come to the front. We're willing to die when the world is burning. When it says it in Revelation, we're going to be open and they're going to be closed. I mean, I remember these sermons. I, I was like, I remember and I was like, yes, when they all come for us, this place will be open. And now they're all closed. Yeah. The same guys. I'm like, 
weren't you just saying two years ago that like Revelation seventeen two says that when they come with you know I'm talking about like these like alpha right. male pastors and now they're like yeah. today on the live stream oh, we want to I'm like <laughs> right like, dude like Mr Rogers just became the pastor of a lot of churches oh, yes right. but like and again I'm I'm not trivializing you know re, right. your people that go through that are scared of the virus and all that and some people legitimately I get it I've lost friend, a dear mentor and friend to it and I mm-hmm. think it's it's a real it's of course it's a real thing. But this, the data also shows to a vast majority of the population, especially younger people, that ecclesia should be given as an option, right? Liberty, we, that means we have the agency to be able to choose, hopefully, uh, what is best for us. And if you just basically remove that, I think you're also just calling your parishioners stupid. Yeah. Like, we know what's best for them, and I think that's really a dangerous precedent to be set. Uh, I totally, totally agree. I, I want to go back to so, just something else, just principles we were talking about from Scripture. You know, Romans 13, of course, um, and I, t- I totally agree with Charlie. You know, it is misapplied. Acts 5.29, we must obey God rather than men. Exodus 1, Hebrew midwives defy Pharaoh. Reading through the book of Esther, right? Um, and you go on and on. Daniel, uh, when it comes to Nebuchadnezzar, there was no requirement, by the way, by law, that Daniel pray three times a day. There was no requirement. He still did so faithfully unto the Lord. No requirement in the Jewish law. A lot of people could say, Jewish people could say, Daniel, nothing in, in the Torah says you have to do this three times a day. Why don't you just obey what, he, what he's saying? No, I'm going to obey God. This is what I'm doing before the Lord. So we, we now have succumbed to these arguments where I, I heard a prominent evangelical theologian say, well, nothing in the Bible says that the church really met once a week, like is couching it in those terms, which it, it's, it's just another way through mental gymnastics to give a way out so that we can be less faithful. And that's what I'm seeing is it's a slow dying, a slow fading. I just want to get your thoughts. It's so different than the founding the founding fathers had intended for our nation, and so Charlie, I, you probably but I, I was reading through a book last week online, the pulpit of the revolution, and it was written a hundred years after the revolution, but it had pastors were preaching bold sermons about current events, and the founding fathers, the the gentleman said the founding fathers thought it immoral the separation of politics and religion, and so I think we need a the pulpit of the revolution once again, yeah. and. And honestly, we just need, we need a robust theology that's rooted in, in, in a strong eschatology that Jesus is going to return and that we must, we need a, we don't need a wishbone, we need a backbone. Yeah. We need to stand up strongly. No. And, and so, some Christians, they, they use eschatology, they're eschatological. That's a fun word to say, eschatological. <laughs> My goodness, that's your word for your day. Uh, belief as, a, as an excuse for inaction. And I think, and I hear this a lot. Oh, Jesus is coming soon. I don't care who's in charge. Oh, hold on a second. Like that is, right. first of all, soon is in relative terms. Time's a man-made construct. So it could be a thousand years from now and 15. But secondly, that's not a reason not to act. I mean, under that kind of decision-making matrix, that would give you basically an excuse never to engage outside of your own house. I mean, right. and so I, obviously that's not true at all. But I, I agree that that, the, t- the type of strong, the, I, I think there actually is a direct correlation to the wimpiness of the, ch- of the church and the, the lackluster teaching of theology. I actually think they're directly correlated oh, together. Yeah. But what's been perplexing, though, is churches that actually have been getting the theology right is all of a sudden they're not standing up at this moment. And there's not a direct connection to that. I do find that some of the more fervent teachers have been the more right. courageous people, the people that really get the Bible and tr- teach it correctly and not just as some like allegorical document that is kind of a self-help book written 2,000 years ago, which is basically how it's ter- you know, taught in certain churches. Yeah. 
which, which again, I, I think it's, you know, I think it might be entertaining. I don't think that's why the reason you should like, exist. But yeah, I, I mean, I, you talked about religious liberty at the beginning, and I think right now we are, we are seeing the, Gideon, the Gideon's army where the, the, the ranks are being thinned. I think it's actually a really good thing. And I think there's going to be a lot of people just offended. There would be a great falling away in the latter days, however people view that. And a lot of people are just getting offended at God or it's just revealing a faith that wasn't genuine to begin with. And so, and, and honestly, and I, I think Charlie, you and I went on Twitter on one time on this, I'm praying for revival, revival in the church yeah. and awakening in the culture. And the Lord has always been faithful in America every 40, 50 years to the fervent desperate prayers of his people to send a, a revival that awaken, uh, that revives the church and brings the church back to normal where we need to be. And so that, that's, I think religious liberty, I think the, this is our moment to be exposed for who we are, to get desperate for God once again, for God to revive the church. That's my heart cry is for another great spiritual awakening. So, and if that happens, you think historically the context in which America was created as a nation, it was preceded by revival, First Great Awakening, George Whitfield, John Wesley, Charles Wesley, all these fantastic preachers, uh, gospel ministers that helped shape the culture of the nation. We have a young generation, the young generation, millennials, and then even younger than that, right, Gen Z. Um, we really do. It's not a crisis, it's an opportunity, but we have an opportunity to reach that generation for Christ and also with an understanding, a complete different cultural understanding of this country than what the cultural Marxists are doing right now through deconstruction. Let's talk about that just briefly as we close. What are some things that are necessary that this next generation learn to appreciate or understand about this country? You want to start, Malachi? Honestly, I think they need to understand the role faith has played in the founding of our country and the, and the, the crucial role the church has played. Most of the next generation has been given a revisionist history of our nation. So they're, they're giving a false story of how things really came about, that, that it, was through, it was through the prayers of, of God's people fleeing religious persecution and tyranny to come here. And so the next generation needs a robust faith and a robust historical understanding and, and I'll start there. That's what they have to have. And so they need to see it modeled. But every great movement of God, I mean, has come through young people. And I heard a guy say one time, he said, I may not be old enough to start a revival, but I might be old enough to stop one. Yeah. And so next generation young people are revolutionaries. Look at the people that are rioting. It's young people primarily. And so I believe God wants to raise up a revival generation, a Psalms 24, 6 generation. This is the generation that, that seek your face, the God of Jacob. They're not going to be satisfied with fake, phony. They're going to go after God. And I'll just go, just to piggyback on historically, Exodus account, literally Israel was old at the end of Exodus. Israel was very, very young at the beginning of Joshua, right? So the Joshua generation was that young generation to lead them into the promised land. And that, that was, that Let me was, add was to necessary. This. Let me just yeah. add to this. So every generation has to fight their own battles. They have to, every generation has to take their stand. They have to, to build their institutions. They have to make their, their, um, their, their Normandy Beach moment. Every generation. And so we cannot sit back on what a previous generation did. So this is our moment to stand, to build, to fight, to believe. The greatest churches have yet to be built. The greatest promises of, of what our nation was founded upon have yet to be fulfilled. We have a moment like none other.
Amen. So a couple thoughts on that. Number one, I was rereading kind of the history of what Bill Bright started back in the 60s and 70s. People don't know who Bill Bright he started uh, Campus Crusade for Christ, and he came up with the four spiritual laws. I think it was him that came up with the four spiritual laws, and I forget them, but one of them is God loves you, and that you must commit to Jesus, and I forget all four. Um, but what was really interesting, I was studying the history of it, is that they were really involved in the late 60s and 70s in counter-protesting students for a democratic society. I was like, that was really interesting. I didn't know that. And people like to talk about Campus Crusade for Christ, but people forget that Campus Crusade for Christ actually had an uptick in membership as soon as they got involved in the civic and political arena. And that was really interesting because I never told I was never told that history by some of these kind of non-political Christians that love to kind of cite Bill Bright and like, oh, we need another campus crusade for Christ. I'm like, huh. Mm-hmm. They actually got involved in the news of the day. Yeah. And and this is kind of my opinion on all this is that, you know, I, I run into a lot of these pastors and some of I, I divide into different groups and Malachi's really good person because he's always default to grace i'm like so okay i'll do that um he's a great person for that so it's like he's a pastor of some sort he's teaching me the word of god (laughs) he softens me so i will give them the benefit of the doubt okay that a lot of these pastors get on fire for the lord and they go into seminary and they get corrupted in these seminaries like wheaton and calvin and all these other places that care far more about social justice than god's justice or the word of god I mean, I, I saw this the other day, and I hope that we can tweet it out at this guy. And I'm going to pray for him. I really, I mean that sincerely. Uh, this guy that works for Wheaton, head of something there, you know, he tweets out uh, white fragility or some, some nonsense like that. And I think you have some thoughts on white fragility. And I, I, we, we, we're laughing because we know who you're talking about. I, I don't, but see, like, you're, I'm, not, I'm, not in this, I'm not in that like next bracket of Christian world like you are. Um, so, you no, know, but it. I love it. I but love but it. you know Keep this going. guy's name and it's yeah. like, it's fine. Yeah. You know, yeah. and, and I saw, you know, yeah. I saw the video, I saw, saw this thing, and he, he, he tweeted it out. He's like, you know, why all Christians get so angry? It's like something like, Malachi, what did he say exactly? Is it, it was just saying we should all read white fragility, and if you, yeah, because, I mean, if you understand, you're inherently racist, which is what white fragility says. And well, I, I, yeah. And I, I guess, give benefit of the doubt, I guess what he's saying is we're all inherently sinful, I guess. But inherently and are are two different things, because I actually think that our Judeo-Christian society has done a pretty good job of making us systemically unracist and systemically decent. I actually believe that. Mm-hmm. I actually think that that's one thing we've course-corrected pretty well over the last 30, 40 years, better than we give ourselves credit for. I'm not saying we've eradicated the sin within us. I actually think that we're far less awful in that particular category than we actually give ourselves credit for. And I just I feel so bad for the innocent that are going to Wheaton and have to learn from this fool. He's a complete fool. And... And I'd love to have a discussion with him theologically, and you can come with me, and you could do a much better job of citing this I could specific... probably help make that happen, to be quite honest with you. No, that's fine. I'll, <laughs> I'll, 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 I'm saying this in love. This is all rooted in love, and I want to tweet it at this guy, and um, I don't know his name. Anyway, so he tweets this out, and so a lot of these pastors, they're on fire, and they get into Wheaton, and they're so excited. They want to change the world, and they go there, and they learn from this very misguided individual, and all of a sudden, they think that white fragility and racism is like the most important thing they have to fight. And I'm not saying it's not an important thing. But then that's, that's basically like the, basically the subtext of the entire teaching. And I, I would wonder, and I know this because Wheaton doesn't do this because I've talked to the students that go there. Has anyone decided at Wheaton that maybe defending Western society is really important for the spreading of the gospel? Like maybe keeping this entire civilization intact is actually pretty important. I don't know, probably not. <laughs> because of the people they produce recently. And that's why I love liberty, is they actually talk about the intersection of all these things. And then some people criticize me and say, oh, Charlie, you're not a real Christian because you care more about politics. And it's like, well, hold on, first, no, that's not true. Secondly, 
I, I talk about why one instructs the other, right? I mean, explain to me if you don't have first freedoms, religious liberty, how are we supposed to you know, spread the gospel if I can't gather, if I can't spread, you know, say these certain things? So I guess to complete the point, I'm saying that most of these pastors have been misguided and I want to give them an opportunity to be enlightened and to understand that they must be activist pastors. And in our sense, like towards Western society, not activist pastors, to try to destroy everything around us. So anyway, I guess... I That's guess, why the pulpit's so important. It was in the, in the Revolutionary War, it was, it was the, the revolutionary, it was the pulpit of the revolution that put courage in the hearts of men to carry the muskets. Amen. And so then people say, well, Charlie, politics and religion or current events shouldn't intersect with you know, what's happening in our life. And I say, wait, hold on a second. I say, Christ said, make disciples of all nations. That's true, right? We all know that. Okay. Disciples of all nations. Well, discipleship in any interpretation of the original word and what we believe it to be is being able to interact with this very complex, chaotic, and sinful world. So when you're, you're creating disciples at your church and they come to you and they say, hey, how do I deal with the fact that my public high school is making my daughter shower with men? Do we take a, st- no, our church doesn't take a stance on that. What? How am I supposed to have that my nine-year-old is now learning the most graphic sex ed possible in California? Right. I'm sorry, our church doesn't take a stance on that. What you then have is a church community that loses faith in you as a pastor. Yeah. And they're like, you're not giving me the answers to make sense of this very chaotic and sinful world. Stuff that now everything is political, that means the church has to have an answer for that. And so that, that it may, you may have been able to get the hall pass in the 80s when Reagan was president and everything, you know, great. Now the left has said everything is political, right? Your sports are political. Right. Your food is political. Your purchases, are politi- your purchases are political. And so then if you're a pastor who says, well, we actually love BLM or we don't take a stance on that, you're basically agreeing that your church is a proxy of totally. a left-wing diabolical scheme. And I think the biggest when you're identifying it, you're saying it. Basically, it says, it's not that we've, we're too political, it's that we're not political enough. When Jesus, we're not even close. We're not even close. When Jesus said, my kingdom is not of this world, most people have, have identified that as saying, Jesus means that he doesn't care about politics. No, no, no. The issue is, his kingdom is not of this world, okay? There is a kingdom still, and there is a king, and that king is it's going to have implications on everyday life. Every political facet of life is going. It's going to matter. Absolutely, the church has been domesticated, right. and that that's, that's, a, that's literally, literally we've become establishment, and totally. we've gone from a protest culture to yeah, an establishment culture. And, and Jesus had a word. He said, "We're to be salt and light." But if a, if the salt loses its savor, it's to be thrown out. Yeah. yeah, and so just to wrap up. Here's the decision-making matrix that I implore all pastors to go through, which is, do you think God cares about what you do? And a very biblical answer is yes. My actions are judged by an omniscient God. Okay. Is voting something you do? Yes. Does God care about that then? And if you say no, I thought you said God cares about what you do. And so if you look at voting as a particular as a particular point of action for your deeply held beliefs therefore your votes must reflect your beliefs and if you're not voting then you are not expressing your your beliefs in the way that i believe you've been called to do and i think it's it's not people say well it's such a messy thing well this world is a messy thing that's a really really bad excuse 
But what has been the result of Christians not getting involved in politics? Mm -hmm. 61 million souls have been aborted since Roe versus Wade. If the church would have rose up how they should have, we never would have had the war in court. It never would have happened. Right. Never would have happened. If the church would have rose up the way we should have, we never would have the transgender issue like it is today. We never would have, like I said, publicly funding of abortions. We would never have the rise of secular humanism. I think, and so some use eschatology as an excuse. I think that's not a lot of people though, but most people, most are what I call to be, they're far too agreeable Christians. And they, and this is a deeper podcast for a different time, but it's, uh, I think the furthest extension of that is now playing itself out. I think what's happening now is four decades of poor theology, Christian ink, that has been much more about, you're now Tony Robbins that talks about Matthew, right? Because you got the lights and all this sort of stuff, and I'm going to make you rich. Like, wait, what? Hold on. That doesn't make any sense. So now, it, now all of it is at an intersection point. So now I think what Malachi said is beautiful, like, what is Christianity going to look like in 20 years? Like, let's define it. Let's create it. We are not called to be nice, right? Well, we're not and called to be mean either. No, but, but the, the, <laughs> That's an important the thing. 11th commandment, is everybody refers to it, right, is, uh, you know, um, is that we're sub somehow called to be nice to one another, and that's it. Like, and so that niceness means we just don't say certain things. Well, I think there's a disagreeableness, though, to Christianity that we don't embrace enough. And I think we conflate disagreeableness with being awful people. Jesus was very disagreeable. Inherently, he was disagreeable. I mean, the early church was a disagreeable entity. I love that term disagreeable because everyone's like, oh, we can agree to disagree. Like, no, we can't anymore. You're going to throw me in prison. <laughs> like, yeah, right. You know, but I, I think we have to be disagreeable. Like, and we can be compassionate and loving and full of grace, but I'm not going to sign off on this idea and I can do that by being perfectly consistent with Christian doctrine. And I think that's where we've, I've, I had to probably say where we have probably lost our way the most is we've become agreeable Christianity. Where it's like, yeah, it's okay to have the abortion, man. Like, sure. Okay. I agree. <laughs> yeah. There you go. Right. And I will say the final thing I'll say in that, it's really funny. There's been too much disagreeableness within like really good Bible-believing churches and not enough disagreeableness like with the secular world with the right. church. That's, this is why Falkirk exists. Amen. And it's, it's faith and freedom. And I would say going forward, like Winston Churchill, I, I don't know the entire line, but he said, if, if we should exist for another thousand years, may, may men say this was our finest hour. So I would just hope to say that if, if America exists for another thousand years, may it be said of the church of Jesus Christ now, our generation, this was our finest hour. Amen. And we're going to close with that. Guys, uh, like us, subscribe to the Falkirk Center, share us, and also the Charlie Kirk podcast. If you guys so choose, yes. can, you can find it at uh, charliekirk.com. But really check out Falkirk. We're doing important things. Amen. Very important things. Amen. And uh, we're just getting started. For such a time as this, Christ is king, church is essential, freedom is everything. God bless you guys. Mm -hmm.